money, financial planning. Honestly, the mere mention of it starts to make me nervous and intimidated. And I'm betting I'm not alone. Gene Chatsky has made a career out of demystifying this process, primarily, but not exclusively, for women. Welcome to Before the Cheering Started. I'm Bud Mishkin. It's a podcast all about the journey to success, the early struggles, the obstacles, plan Bs, and the passion to push forward. Gene Chatsky is a longtime business journalist and personal finance advocate. Highlighting her resume, 25 years of appearances on the Today Show, and the company she created and the podcast that goes with it, Her Money. What's not officially on her resume is that she is a translator demystifying the world of finance. Gene, your whole career has been about financial literacy and the conversation about uh, finance. Where do you think we're at right now? And what have you seen throughout the course of the years that you've been doing this, either in a positive or in a negative direction? If I were grading, I'd give us a B, maybe a, a B minus. We've certainly improved. Uh, I think the pandemic forced us into a place where people became really conscious of all of the different ways that health and money and work intersect and fostered a lot of conversations that we weren't having with our spouses, with our colleagues, with our children about um, about money, which is really a conversation about resources and how you want to best use your limited resources to create the life that you want to create. Could could we do better? We could a hundred percent do better. We could we could be having more conversations. We could be teaching uh, financial skills and financial literacy in schools K through twelve. We could make uh, make personal finance a, a prereq for for college. I mean, there's so many different things that we could be doing better, but I I definitely think that we've improved and we've been on this fairly steady trajectory of improvement as individuals have been forced to take more responsibility for our financial lives over the past three, four decades. Uh, one thing you wrote, which I found really fascinating, was uh, you said you come to this as an English major. And I'm curious what how that uh, tangibly affects uh, what you've done through the years. I was not very good with my money coming out of college. I made classic mistakes, uh, credit card debt, pulling money out of a 401k, overspending, not budgeting. I, I, you know, I did basically everything wrong that you could have done when I was a, a young person in my 20s. And I, at the same time, was trying to forge a career in journalism. And I got a job as the editorial assistant to the business editor at Working Woman Magazine, which meant that I wrote stories about companies and careers and management and marketing and a little bit of personal finance. And I really liked it. 
um, so much that when I was ready to leave Working Woman, I went in search of a job in business journalism. And it was tough to get. Um, I had to deviate, spend a little time on on Wall Street because the uh, the big business magazines didn't think much of Working Woman and wouldn't hire me. But I think a therapist would say I was trying to fix what was wrong in my own life. I was trying to learn these skills that I knew that I didn't have. And being an English major and a writer, my skill is really communicating. Um, my skill is taking a lot of information in and then mushing it together, figuring out what's important, what's not so important, and explaining it in plain English, um, often very quickly. Uh, the 25 years that I spent on the Today Show uh, was really an education in how to explain complicated topics in three minutes. And so um, so I think, I, look, I don't think that that money management is rocket science. I think it's good habits often repeated, but I, I do think that we have um, overcomplicated things uh, to the degree where many people believe it's rocket science. And my secret sauce is that I make it understandable without dumbing it down. Yeah, I, I would put myself in that group that thinks it's rocket science and is... Um is intimidated by it and is fearful of it and is sometimes skeptical of it and all of that. And, and quite honestly, that's a conversation. And I want to ask you about, you know, the notion of women's relationship to money. And you've addressed that throughout your career. And whenever I read that or read, oh, women feel this way, that <laughs> I always find myself in that group, which is fine. Um, how, how about that notion of women's relationship to money and where you see that's gone throughout the course of your years working on this? Women tend to focus more than men on the safety and security part of the picture. And there are some men who are definitely in this camp who that's want to who want to check the safety and security box off first. Much of it much of these feelings and and how you relate to money as a person has everything to do with the way you were raised. Um, we can't unsee the picture that we saw in childhood. Uh, so whether there was a lot of money, whether there was not a lot of money, whether there was anxiety or fighting about money, all of those things stay with you and impact you as an adult dealing with money. They impact the way that you interact with your spouse or your partner. It's helpful to know how that person comes to money when you're trying to forge a, a relationship when you interact together. But by and large, women are more focused on safety, security, stability, savings, uh, there's been research uh, that shows that we tend to leave too much cash in the bank. Money that should be invested sits in checking. Why? 
it, it sits in checking because we feel safer having that money in checking than we do investing the money in the markets, even if we don't necessarily need that money in the short term. Um, and it is changing. Uh, I launched a program this year called Investing Fix. It's basically a course I'm teaching with Karen Feinerman, who is a, a friend of mine. She is a professional investor. You see her on CNBC. And um, we are teaching women the fundamentals of investing on Zoom every um, uh, twice a week, uh, tw twice a week, twice a month, every other Monday. Um, and, and, it's really fun and engaging and more women want to participate in our own investments. Even if we don't want to be traders and most of us do not, we want to understand enough about our investments to have a, a knowledgeable conversation at a cocktail party or with a financial planner. And so, so that program has been fun. You talk about lessons learned when we we're growing up. Uh, what were the lessons learned that you learned growing up, uh, moving around the Midwest, as I understand it? And also, were there lessons learned that you had to unlearn as you were a young adult, came out of college, start creating your career? I, I think my bad habits that I picked up coming out of college were all on me, definitely not on my parents. I, I learned two um two important lessons from my parents, maybe three. Um, one was you don't spend money you don't have. Um, my father was a college professor. Uh, my mother worked while he was getting his PhD, taught second grade, and and um, then worked sporadically as, as my brothers and I were growing up. And I never felt like we didn't have enough money, despite the fact that as a college professor, I know my dad did not earn a lot. Um, but I took note of how my parents managed. Um, every Wednesday night, we would have uh, tuna and macaroni and cheese for dinner, right? And I, I, we always loved that. Like, who doesn't love Kraft macaroni and cheese? <laughs> um, but... Later, I realized that was an incredibly inexpensive dinner for my mother to put on the table. Um, when we took a cross-country trip the summer that I was 13 uh, in the station wagon, we didn't go to McDonald's for lunch. We would stop at a grocery store and my mother would buy a loaf of bread and a, a thing of bologna and we would make sandwiches and picnic out of the back of the car. You learn strategies to. I learned strategies to to make do when there wasn't a lot of money. I also learned to work really hard. Uh, my my parents were incredibly hard workers, um, always, and I think my father was maybe the first side gigger. I, I ever met. He was a college professor. A lot of college professors have side gigs. He did research. Um, he consulted. He made a lot of speeches. Um, that definitely helped put my brothers and, and I through college and um, uh, my brothers and me through college. I, I 
messed that up. Um, and uh, and I I also learned that it's possible to reinvent. I watched my mother uh, as we moved from city to city reinvent herself so many different times uh, through work when she was uh, she she was a, a an elementary school teacher. When we were in Bloomington, Indiana, she went back to school. She got her master's. Uh, the next job she had was teaching college statistics. Um, and the one after that was running a gifted and talented program at a university in West Virginia. And the one after that was at a li- as a librarian at a, at a children's school. Um, she, she just, she figured out how to use her skills in order to do the job that was available. Is there any part of the moving around that had an effect on you as a kid and that translates into some something, although it may not seem like, you know, to the, to the outside person, it may not seem like, well, where's the thread there, but is there a thread there to what you do or have yeah. done for the last, you know, 30 years because of the moving around as a kid? Absolutely. I, I, um, well, first of all, I hated it, right? Yeah. I mean, I went kicking and screaming every single time, maybe not, maybe not the move from, Bloomington, Indiana to Wheeling, West Virginia, because I was like at that age where I just hated everything about me. I was coming out of middle school and going into high school. And so I was, um, that's not an easy, that's not an easy time for anybody, even if you're staying in the same place. Yeah. Terrible time for, for, um, adolescents. And, uh, but I think I was more open to a fresh start at that point. I, um, no, I can talk to anybody. I, I mean, that's what moving around gave me. I can, I can talk to anybody. And that's important, right? When you are, um, when you're trying to launch a business, when you're trying to get a job, when you're trying to make new friends, when you are, um, when you're just, trying perhaps to be a little bit more extroverted than you are naturally, it, it definitely broke me out of my shell. So you arrive in college at the University of Pennsylvania, a fine institution. Yes, as you would say. Yeah. Uh, and do you have some thought of what the dream is at that point or what the goal is at that point? Or is it all kind of, all right, I'm in college. Let's kind of figure it out from here. Uh. I went into college thinking that I would be a systems analyst or an engineer. I, I, I won the award in my high school for the best senior math student. And then I got to Penn and I decided I would take calculus again because I thought it would be easy. Uh, and the professor spoke to the blackboard. I completely lost my way. And I followed a boy to the DP. Uh, I followed a, a guy that I was dating to um, to the Daily Pennsylvanian and started writing stories and loved that um, and ended up spending most of um, my time in college, much of my time in college uh, at the school paper. And, and uh, it wasn't too long before I was on a path to become a journalist, uh, getting, looking for internships and, and, um, and following that, that, uh, train of thought. 
by the way, I'm still reeling from the sentence that uh, thought calculus would be easy. Uh, a, a sentence you don't hear, you don't hear many <laughs> was, people say anywhere at any time. It was easy in high school. It you, was, you know, it was it was easy in high school. I figured it would be the same class, but it 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 wasn't. It was intimidating and um, and and disappointing. So, uh, is there a person or a professor in college who, if we're lucky in life, we have these people who we meet who subtly or not so subtly uh, influence us and steer us on, and all of a sudden the window to the rest of your life opens up. Is there someone at, at Penn who was that for you? A, a woman named Nora Magid was that for me. Um, Penn at the time, and, and Penn has changed uh, a lot in its approach to writing and to journalism. At, at this point, they have a journalism minor. They have a, an amazing home for writers called the Kelly Writers House. But at that point, they had the DP, and they had a professor named Nora Magid, who was uh, who had written for publications in New York, had a career as a as a as a magazine writer, taught as an adjunct lecturer, a magazine writing course, and decided that it was her job to help any Penn student crazy enough to want to work in journalism get a job. So she, um, I took her class, uh, well, I took her class once, then I took an independent study with her. I, um, she helped me uh, figure out which internships to apply to uh, throughout my college career. And um, uh, sadly, um, uh, she died very young, but she's um, in, a, in a roundabout way responsible for my marriage. Um, she, she uh, when I graduated from college is in her quest to help people get jobs, she sent me to uh, interview to be the assistant to the number two editor at GQ, a guy named Elliot Kaplan. And he did not hire me. He actually hired another student that Nora had sent his way before. Um, but uh, years later, when she passed away, a bunch of us got together to create a mentorship prize at Penn to help other students who wanted to get jobs in journalism. And uh, we re-met and now we're married. So she's had an effect on your life in, in numerous ways. In numerous ways. We yeah. think she's laughing. And now we have a dog named Norman because Nora Maggot. So there you go. So you come out of school. And as I understand it, you have a choice between two jobs. One that is in the field and one that is not, but pays more. And how Double. do you make that decision? Is that a conversation that you have at home with your folks? Like, oh, what should I do? No, I saw, I mean, my father at that point was running television stations and had seen me go through, you know, multiple internships. If I had had the conversation, I would not have taken the job for the money, but I wanted to take the job for the money. So I didn't have the conversation. I, um, I was offered two jobs, one for $12,000 at a magazine, one for $24,000 in the retail management training program of a department store in Hartford, Connecticut called G Fox. And I, I, I took, I took the job that paid. 
um, I thought, wow, somebody's going to pay me that much money. And I knew on day two, after I had bought a car and rented an apartment, um, that it was a mistake. It took me three months to get brave enough to look back in New York for another magazine job and to quit. But um, I learned a lot about taking a job for the money um, in that experience. I The job that I ironically ended up with in New York paid $11,000 a year, so less than the first job. And I got a second job teaching SATs on the side for Princeton Review. It, it was what I needed to do to live in New York. It was fine. I enjoyed it. Um, and so it was... Uh, it, it was just a lesson in in what you don't do for the money. I think many of us have that experience of those early years, not making much money. For for me, it was a place called Wok on Third, a restaurant where if you got the Chinese food on Sunday night and shared it with your roommates, if you could make it go to Tuesday, that was a pretty good week. Very good week. I mean, I I remember a lot of dinners that were hot and sour soup, which came with rice for a dollar. You're set. You're set. It lasts. So in, in, that, in those early years, is there a sense of, okay, I'm on a path or are there still moments of, what am I doing here? Uh, there was a one big, what am I doing here moment? And not because I didn't want to be on the path, but because the path didn't really seem to want me. So I, I had um, left my magazine job. I was looking to um, go to a bigger business magazine. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to go to a Forbes or a Fortune or Money, and uh, they would not hire me. Um, in fact, I had a, a an interview with the guy who at the time was the chief of reporters at Forbes, and he told me to go get an MBA. And my college experience, I loved, but I didn't love being in class. And I didn't really like the idea of spending a lot of money at that point to go back and go back to school. Um, and so I was floundering uh, for a while, I, I went to cooking school for six months. Um, I, I thought at that point I was maybe uh, maybe business journalism wasn't it. Maybe I should try to be Molly O'Neill at the Times and write about food. Um, uh, I I uh, very quickly put on a, a lot of weight that I would rather not have put on, and decided that I would be best off just as a as a home cook who enjoyed it. So I gave up on that. Um, I, uh, I I did write a lot of, of freelance stories. And at, at that point, I decided that I was going to look for a job on Wall Street because I thought about when I had written business stories, um, often you would call a Wall Street research analyst and quote them as a source. And 
I had learned enough about what these research analysts do to know that they have to write a lot of reports. Um, and I figured maybe it would be handy for them to have somebody in-house who could write the reports for them and I could learn what the guy at Forbes told me that I needed to know while getting paid at the same time. And uh, I got that job very easily um, and did it for a couple of years and then uh, was able to transition back into business reporting at Forbes. That same guy actually hired me. And did that feel, once you moved to Wall Street, did that feel like a smooth fit right from the get-go? Felt pretty smooth. Yeah. yeah. It was a job I could have done. It was, it, I mean, it, it, that was interesting. That was a, a, a point at which I could have stayed. Um, I was good at it. I liked it. But because... And I was making substantial money, right? I had gone, again, from magazines to Wall Street. I doubled my salary in a blink of an eye. Um, but I think because I had stepped off the path right out of college, I wasn't going to allow myself not to get back on it. I had, I had intentionally gone to Wall Street to get back into journalism. And even though I liked it, I was going to go back into journalism. Uh, you've written and spoken about uh, going back to the college years, or at least the end of your college years, something called recruitment envy, um, which I know all too well. Uh, in my senior years, I saw friends of mine have jobs lined up for the fall and go off to some great trip that summer as I was still looking for work. Did you kind of keep that through, especially the early years of your career, under the notion of no one's going to hand anything to me? I've really got to hustle in order to make this happen, and then this happen, and then this happen. I think I still feel that. I, I think there are opportunities that come your way, and and in those situations. I think the challenge is to take them, right? To not say no when something comes your way unexpectedly, to give it a chance. But there are there are many things that you have to forge, that you have to continue to hustle for. Um, over the past uh, decade or so, um, since I left my last magazine job, I, I've operated as a, a basically a freelancer for a long time and then I launched a company about five six years ago um, but it's it's all hustle it's all connecting and pitching and um, and figuring out uh, what you can do for somebody that is valuable enough to them that they'll pay you for it I never like to presume anything, but if we talk about women in finance, especially if we go back, you know, 20, 30 years, the presumption is that there were obstacles and slights, uh, real and perceived. What was your experience? Did you feel that as a, a, a present thing, an everyday thing? Or I didn't, actually. I felt the opposite. I when I um when I started working on the Today Show when I got hired I was very conscious of the fact that 
I got that job in part because I was not a man with gray hair. I I was following a series of men with gray hair who had appeared on on morning television and afternoon television to talk about money. Um, but I think that the fact that I looked different and sounded different and was not intimidating really helped. Hmm. Can you tell me about that first time going on the Today Show? I mean, this is the Today Show we're talking about. This is seen in a couple of homes. Uh, do you recall you know, what you did the night before, how you prepared the morning of, anything unusual about the experience? Uh, my first Today Show segment was a weekend Today Show segment. Um, I talked about the best credit card. So I was at Smart Money Magazine, um, and Smart Money was a uh, it was an interesting magazine. It had two very wealthy corporate parents. It was the love child of of Hearst Publications and the Wall Street Journal, and so they had a budget for PR and. The uh, PR guy that they hired started placing people on television to talk about the different stories that that we were that we were writing, and eventually um, uh, got a spot for uh, our editor in chief on the early morning Today Show, um, the the early morning version of the Today Show, the one that went off at five a.m. And our boss did it once and said he was never doing it again. There was no coffee. It was too early. <laughs> um, so it, it rotated around for a while. And uh, I did it uh, at one point. And the producer chased me down at the elevator and said, we like you. Can you come back? So I did that every week for three years and then got picked up on the national um, version of the Today Show. And I was physically ill for the first two years on the Today Show. Not not on camera, because that would have been awful, but I would get to the studio and, and be sick, and then I would go and do my thing, and it would, would be just fine. It, it was very, um, very nerve-wracking, and I was incredibly well-prepared. I, I had a, an elaborate process where I would take – um, what was generally a six-page or eight-page magazine story, um, I would uh, go through it and figure out what was important. I would take a legal pad and I would write out the questions that I thought that I would be asked and the answers longhand. And then I would just start practicing it and boil it down from what was it started each segment in my head. The Q&A would be about 10 minutes. And by the time I was done, it was about three. So I knew um, I knew that I could do it. And I, I uh, remember uh, during this point in, in, in time, we had moved to the suburbs of New York. And our office uh, for Smart Money was very close to the West Side Highway. So I drove myself back and forth to work. And I would just have this ongoing conversation with myself in the car, just talking to myself. And this was in the days before cell phones. And so people would stare at me and just like <laughs> smile and laugh as I was just talking to myself in the car with with hand motions because I, I talk with my hands, um, one hand on the wheel, one hand gesturing. 
That's great. Yes. Once upon a time, when we saw people talking by themselves, we had a different thought than what we, exactly. we, we have now. Uh, a self-serving question. Uh, you talk a lot about how to talk money with kids. And so we've done that. Have we done it enough? Maybe. Uh, but how to resume the conversation once you have a child in college? So earlier we were talking about money as a limited resource, right? Um, that That is the conversation. Um, but with kids, you have to put them into a position where they have to manage that limited resource more frequently so that when they get into college, you can give them or they can have money that they earned over the summer or you can allocate money for a, a, a month and they can make it last the month. They don't blow it the first week. Um, when they get out of college, the goal is that they then have that bigger budgeting skill that they can apply to to a salary. Um, but it, it's practice with them. And, and it involves... Um, talking through the the minutia with my daughter, um, she worked during the year or during the summers, and that money was part of her spending money for college. And she couldn't really manage it um, to begin with. She was going through it uh, too quickly. And so we came up with a system where I held on to it and on a weekly basis, I would transfer the money for, for the week from my account into her account. And it enabled her to learn how to budget for a week. And then when she got better at it, we went to two weeks and then we went to a month. And, and eventually she became better at managing those sums of money. But there are some things with kids that you just have to explain. Um, I mean, credit, we kids understand how to use credit cards because they've seen us using them their whole life. Right. But until they understand um, how a card works and the whole credit scoring system and the fact that their credit score is a measure of how responsible they are and that landlords and employers and um, and future lenders are going to want to look at this and and use it to judge them. They're not going to get that. So right. that that has to that has to be a conversation. You've done so many different things during your career, and under the the full heading of uh, finance, is there a initiative that you're most proud of? I, I'm very proud of what we're doing at Her Money. Um, we're, we're a small company, um, started as the Her Money podcast, but we quickly discovered that there was a community building around this podcast that wanted more. Um, so we launched a website and now we've got coaching, um, uh, budgeting courses as well as, um, as well as the investing course that I was talking about. And, I, I'm very proud of the impact that we're having on the lives of of real women. Um, they tell us, and and that's uh, that's incredibly gratifying. And finally, is there a way you can codify 
how tangibly the early years that we've discussed, growing up, moving around, college years, the early years, working, how those years tangibly affect what you do right now. I think that anybody who's struggled financially remembers that period in their life. I don't want other people to have to go through that unnecessarily. I think what I do is just an effort to prevent other people from having to have that struggle or giving them a, a way out um, if, if that's what they need. Jean Chatsky. Her podcast is called Her Money with Jean Chatsky. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. The episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. Thank you as always to editor Lou Pellegrino. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on the journey.